0: Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International, Tuesday at 10 p.m. on ACB Radio Main, or wherever you get your podcast.
0: Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection. The
2: dreamers and me
0: Greetings and welcome to Pride Connection with BPI As always, I'm your host of the most, Anthony Corona I am with our president, Gabriel lopez Cafati. The hey I everyone, mean, welcome. We are joined by Leah Gardner, who is butch and beautiful. <laughs>
1: oh, Anthony, haven't we been through this before? Haven't we had this discussion before? This is going to become an ongoing quarrel between the two of us, right? But hey, so you, well, you're claiming want- you're the you are claiming you are the host with the most. Do you want to <laughs> do you want to clarify that? For our listeners?
0: (laughs) Well, I will let Gabe clarify that in private email messages. If you want to know how I'm the most, you can message Gabriel. But on a serious note, the three of us would like to thank everybody who has reached out with comments, feedback, and all the warm wishes for the show. Thank you guys so very much. Keep listening every Tuesday night at 10 or at the various replays throughout the weekend. Weekend, this is Pride Connection. Gabriel, you have a president's message for us this evening?
3: Absolutely. Thank you, Anthony. We are so proud and so happy to have this spot here on ACB Radio. And uh, we're thankful for all of you out there supporting us and uh, giving us great feedback and enjoying our shows. All the team in ACB Radio, our editor, Tim Cummings. I'm happy to always co-host with my partner, Anthony, and my very dear friend, Leah. I'm going to keep it short and simple because I do not want to take minutes away from a very exciting, very harmonious and sizzling show that we have prepared (laughs) for you guys today. That intro is the least I could say, and I wouldn't make justice to the caliber of the guest that we have with us. And I will let Leah say more about him. He's one of our founding members, back then Dflag now BPI, very talented and highly respected professional musician, Mr. Dwayne Estes. It's an honor to have you on Pride Connection.
0: Before Leah jumps into the ongoing interview with her husband, I just want to give a public service announcement to you guys who have been asking about the podcast. We will be up and running as a podcast by the end of May. So stay tuned, and you can go back into the archive and find out exactly why Leah is butch and not beautiful.
1: All of you have your eyebrows raised right now because you heard Anthony say, my husband. Anyone who knows <laughs> anything about me would find that a strikingly strange term. Dwayne and I met in 1999 when I was much younger and much more naive than I am now. I grew up in New Hampshire in a very rural area and then I went to college in Vermont And um, things were a little bit, I don't want to say simple, but life didn't move quite so fast in those states. In 1999, I went to my first ACB convention, which was held in LA. I didn't know a lot when I walked into that convention of a few thousand blind people. I knew a couple things. Number one, there was a new group that had been advertised in the convention program uh, that was hosting a few events sort of loosely I don't believe there was even a name for this group at that point but it was for people that were GLBT and wanted to have a a space to to chat so I knew I was excited about having that opportunity didn't know much else I met Wayne I think uh, the second day I was there I had gone to this meeting room in the bowels of the hotel There were maybe 10 of us, I think, if that. And we all went kind of around and introduced ourselves. And there was this really fun, cool guy with this great story. He was a musician. I could tell he was a lot of fun to talk to. And uh, he introduced himself to me afterwards as as Dwayne. And we hit it off pretty quickly. However, he did not become my husband for a few more days. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it was a very quick romance because I said I was naive. There used to be at the ACB convention, for those of you that are listening to me, remember, there was a sports fanatics luncheon. And usually there was a presentation by somebody that was an athlete of some kind or another, maybe a Paralympic athlete, or once they hit, there was a minor league baseball player. But I sat next to an individual from New York City. And I made the mistake of talking with him after the lunch about baseball, primarily. What I didn't realize is he was interested in learning much more about me than my interest in the Boston Red Sox (laughs) fighting with me about his Yankees fandom. (laughs) Found out that the room was under my name And he started calling me constantly and wanting to hang out. And unfortunately, he was also on the same floor as I was. Uncanny ability to meet up with me at the worst possible moments. And I was still much younger. At this point in my life, I would have set him, I can't say the word straight, <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely would have uh, communicated to him kindly, but in a no nonsense way that I was not interested in him.
0: You were batting for the other team.
1: To I, was.
0: Sports. I was. I was. <laughs> yeah. So
1: I had told him that I was having lunch with my friend Dwayne, and I was really busy. I'm going to let Dwayne finish this story. Your husband. Him. My <laughs> husband. Yes. I thought that that was the end and I would never hear from this guy again, but I'll let Dwayne finish it.
2: So I had gone over to the exhibition hall and was just kind of checking out all of the goodies and gadgets that were there. And at that time I had vision of 2200. And so it's amazing what you can do with 2200 eyesight, but I'm standing (laughs) there looking at something and, uh, Someone that I know, a couple of booths down, yells down to me, hey, Dwayne. And so I hear this other voice on the other side of me say, so you're Dwayne? And I'm like, yeah. And so this guy comes over and and he says, so you're a friend of Leah's, huh? And I said, yeah, Leah and I are friends. Sure, absolutely. So he says, well, I I met her and, and she's a great baseball fan. She loves the Red Sox. I said, yeah. He says, well, can't you just give a guy a break? (laughs) <laughs> and, and I said, "Well, really?" I said, "You don't understand." I said, "Leah' is my wife, and we have five children, And we arranged someone to take care of our kids so we could come to the convention. And so that started this now 20-plus <laughs> year marriage and dealing with these five children that are all now grown. And possibly we could have grandkids, but I'm an old man now. I can't be old grandkids. I'm happy to remain husband, but we're done with children and grandchildren.
1: Yeah, Dwayne has (laughs) chosen to stay far removed from any of the dramatics of our children. And they haven't lived at home in many years. And my big concern about them right now is that they may not be practicing social distancing. But you know, (laughs) I, I can't control them anymore. And I tell Dwayne, All the time. We're going to have to let them make their own decisions. But if I talk to them, I absolutely want them to follow the quarantine instructions and practice safe distancing right now, particularly. But, you know, in 1999, I want to talk a little bit about BPI. What is BPI now? I want to talk about our roots and our inception. Blaine, you were there at this really critical point. I had no idea when I just decided to go off to this convention of blind people in 1999 that I was gonna be the beginning of what ultimately became BPI and part of forming this affiliate. And I can remember sitting in a room with all these people and all this arguing going on about whether we should try to gain affiliate status or not. I wasn't sure what becoming an affiliate really meant then. I didn't understand the different terms and definitions. And Dwayne, I'm just wondering if you can remember being in that space also and maybe what your perception was at the time.
2: Way back in 1999, I was in the very early stages of my adventure with blindness. And I was just looking for some blind folks that I could get together with and see if I couldn't find a path forward. I do remember being there when I called about the convention. I asked if there was a gay organization and I was told you need to talk to a man named Rob Hill. And so I got Rob Hill's telephone number and I called him and we talked and he said, yeah, we've been talking about this for couple of years, and we're going to meet and decide if we are going to seek affiliation. And so after having that conversation and then showing up in LA, going to the meeting, and, and I don't really remember really a great deal of arguing, but I remember a lot of discussion on what what are we going to be? Are we going to be a social group? Or are we going to have a real mission? What, what are we going to be? And I don't think we left LA quite knowing what that was going to be. And I think that all got flushed out the next year in Louisville. I do, in fact, remember being there. And I certainly knew that there were blind gay people, but I just didn't know how I was going to manage to find out where they were and who they were. Being the tenacious, resourceful young man that I was at that time, I set out to find them, and I did. We
1: had no idea at the time that we were forming what would now be an affiliate that has quite a long track record of of being in existence. We are 20 years in now. I don't know if I would have even conceived of what it would be like 20 years in the future from that point. In thinking about what the mission of our organization was going to be I know that we did, during that time in Los Angeles, decide that we were going to be called blind friends of lesbians and gays, particularly because there was a lot of concern from some members about privacy. And if we formed this particular affiliate, would everybody in the affiliate automatically be labeled as a member of the GLBT community? And that was a worry for people at that point. And the name was meant to be inclusive of everybody. So you could be an ally, you could be someone who who was GLBT, but the name in and of itself wouldn't simply convey that you were, quote unquote, a member of the queer community. I think things have changed now, 20 years later. I'm, I'm not positive that same concern would be in play, but I do know that that was a really valid and, and major source of worry for a lot of people then. I think Ro- Rob would know this specifically. We'll have to ask him at some point. I believe this organization changed its name to Blind Pride International in 2010.
3: Yes, I believe so. Okay.
1: I still can remember the early days of involvement in this organization and building it to what it would ultimately become. And Dwayne was a key factor in that he was on the first board of directors with me, and Dwayne played such a big role in helping shape this organization. So, Dwayne, I just want to make sure that you know that everybody who's a member of BPI now is really indebted to you for having such a. Role in who we are now.
2: At that time, I really didn't see myself as being much of an activist. That isn't who I am as a person. As a sighted gay man coming out in 1980, I just felt that the best thing I could do was just be me. I never wore a sign announcing that I was gay, but yet at the same time, I would not deny it if in fact I were asked. And when I got to that first convention in 99 and saw that there really is a need for this, I just made up my mind that I was going to step out and do what I could to make this happen. The fireworks didn't really begin, as you remember, Leah, until the next year. There were certain states that just absolutely were totally against our being an affiliate, and uh, I remember that you and I went to a couple of those meetings, and and we sort of got Mm -hmm. tossed out. We raised a ruckus. uh, we did. And they sent for Rob to come and explain himself. What what was this all about? I really do appreciate you all feeling that I played such an important part in the forming of BPI. I just saw what it could be. And I just did what I could do at that particular time. And I am a strong personality. And I am someone who will just Say, look, this is what we've got to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And I think you'll like it. But I I don't know if you remember. Do you remember those six ham trays we picked up for Louisville?
1: (laughs) We had a celebration to mark our affiliation status in 2000 in Louisville. Our first president, Rob Hill ordered some deli trays from one of the local supermarkets and it turned out that basically six deli trays consisted of one thing one meat ham ham mountains of ham there was no (laughs) on those trays there were no vegetables nothing else, it was just, just endless mountains of ham. And what I remember most is I had gone, this is before Instacart <laughs> services like that. I had gone with Dwayne and I, with Rob, and I think a few other people to the grocery store, to them up. And things were really starting to get busy at the convention. And anyone that's been a convention knows what it's like to wait in the lobby for an elevator because everybody's looking for the elevators, trying to find them, not mm-hmm. knowing where they are. And it's Zoom. Mm-hmm. I had in my hands, I think, at least three of those gigantic deli trays. And, like, I was, I'm a very strong woman, okay? <laughs> but, <laughs> I was groaning (laughs) under the weight, and so the elevator door opens. This chaos, of course, it ensues. There's lots of people in the elevator, and I'm with Rob and Dwayne, and I'm trying to kind of push myself ahead with these trays because I'm not quite sure how much longer I can carry them, and I'm Uh going, hold the elevator, hold the elevator, please, press the open button. I'm almost inside the door. Bam, they slam right in front of me. I know I had some choice words to say. I think everybody in the lobby heard me. <laughs> <laughs> I am still proud to this day I did not spill. Did not spill any of those wow. trays. They wound up wow. safe and secure. I know.
2: There were quite a few ham sandwiches that were indeed all week. Oh, yes. yes. We've never I, let Rob get it. Never. And I ate ham just so we wouldn't have to throw it away.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was difficult in many ways getting the affiliate up and running, but we we had some great times we still talk about now. But I do want to talk about Dwayne's true passion. I Mm. knew two things about Dwayne when I left to go home after L.A., I knew one of them was that he was losing his sight and that it was becoming extremely frustrating for him. And the other thing I knew about Dwayne was that he was a really accomplished musician. He had told me lots of stories, you know, of life in various productions and on the road and doing gigs. And I knew that those two things were in a lot of ways intertwined, that Dwayne was concerned about his increasing sight loss impacting his career. Dwayne, if you could kind of give us a sense of how you got involved in music and what your career was like prior to the sight loss.
2: Well, I truly believe that I came out of the womb wanting to know where the piano was. I have just always been drawn to the piano and uh, my mother's family are very musical and so I got a little natural ability and started playing very early. And my very first professional job was playing, of all things, the calliope on a riverboat that came to Evansville, Indiana, where I'm from, in the summertime to run excursions. And the calliope is very loud, and it is never in tune, but yet at the same time, at 12, making a dollar an hour and all of the hot dogs and soda that I wanted, I had hit the big time. As far as I was concerned, I had I had really done it. But by the time I was 10, I knew that I was going to be a professional musician come hell or high water. And I had a little ability and my grandmother was very forthright in telling me that it was going to be my ability as a musician and education that was going to get me up and out of Evansville, Indiana. And I I wanted to do that. By the time I got to high school, I got involved in every possible musical whatever that I could and my High school band director Larry Eifler, when I was a sophomore, really encouraged me to put a trio together and start booking it. That was exactly what what I did. We played for everything in the world, whether it was a picnic, barbecue, just whatever we could. We actually even played for some some wedding receptions, and um, it was a wonderful way to gain some professional experience. And um, the two I hope guys got more than a
0: dollar and a hot dog.
2: <laughs> well, absolutely. The years between 12 and 15, my salary went up a lot. I was really thankful for that. But I then uh, got involved. There was a a man named Red Wick there in Indiana, helped me a great deal. And I just decided that I was going to go for it. And in 1984, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to go to Belmont College, which Belmont is now Belmont University. And they have today a really fantastic commercial music program and music business program. And at that time, they were just starting it. But Belmont was affiliated with the Southern Baptist Church, and I didn't think that was going to be a problem for me, but when I got there and really found out that there was a lot more church involved at Beaumont than I thought, I had issues. I didn't have issues with church, but I had issues with the church having issues with my being gay and issues with some of the guys walking down the hall in the music building that I had seen on Saturday night at the Warehouse 28, and <laughs> they didn't want it to be known. So we just didn't talk much about it. And I really very quickly knew that Belmont wasn't where I was going to be able to do to complete my music education. But a friend of mine had been transferred from Evansville Uh, there was a private supper club in Evansville called the Petroleum Club and he had just been appointed manager at the Nashville City Club so I was very fortunate Jim said Dwayne I I don't know anybody in Nashville put a band together and come go to work for me so that's really was my my first experience there in Nashville and I, I put a group of musicians together and did that and and for other events and other things that went on there at the at the City Club I was responsible for booking that and making sure that that all happened and was taken care of and it was a lot of responsibility for someone who was 21 years old. I love the business side of the entertainment business uh, as much as I do performing. I I really do.
0: Let's pause for a second because I think the listeners would like to know what your instruments are and what your genres are.
2: So I am a pianist by training. I was sighted at that time, so I was able to read music and Learned to be a good sight reader, which was really, really important and got me a lot of jobs. By that time, synthesizers were really a big part of pop music, and so I certainly learned how to play the synth, Hammond B3, whatever I needed to play as a keyboard player. I can even play a little accordion. I don't advertise it, but I can. Not my favorite thing to do, but but can do that. Jazz is where I have my music um, music education and my advanced music education. But I can play any style of music. How to explain it. I, I can play um, anything from Bach to rock.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. That works. And being an amazing sight reader, that, that helps well, being able to jump into any un- familiar genre.
2: Absolutely. And I have been called many times when another keyboard player was ill or something had happened and I have walked in and sat down on the bench and looked up at the conductor for the downbeat and been ready to go. I worked really, really hard to get those skills together because I was only sighted in my left eye. I had lost the sight in my right eye to glaucoma at age two, but I was determined that I was going to, I was going to be a good reader. And also, I'm an arranger. I started arranging and writing music really out of necessity because we might get called for a job and someone would want a certain tune. And well, you know, we didn't have a chart on that. So rather than paying someone else to write it, I would just write it. And as time went on, I got better at it and, and did that. Whatever needs to be played, that that was my goal, was just to be able to, to do that and to be able to fit in and get in wherever I could. I really wanted to eventually end up as a musical director in the theater that was the goal and the dream gig would have been to have been a musical director in the theater and then when the show was over to head to some jazz club sit in with the band play for a couple of hours have a few drinks and then go somewhere else and get in trouble (laughs) (laughs)
3: well i have to jump in duane because i already knew you when you had had your vision lost obviously that's how we met through uh vpi i have visited you in 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 your uh hometown you are respected and uh, i've seen you compose play direct etc it's amazing i just have to point out and i don't know if you have anything to share how powerful your artistic side, how, how much of a music sense you have in your blood and in your heart that even through vision loss, you never lost any of that. And you managed and you were able to continue with such an accomplished career in music.
2: I uh, detached the retina in my sighted eye in November of 1996. And for that first year, it was a war of trying to save as much eyesight as we could. By the fall of 97, I became legally blind overnight, and I was very afraid of losing my career, and I was incredibly frustrated. And really, I didn't know how to do anything else. And to this day, you know, I don't that's music is what I know. It's what I've done. When you want something done and and no one else is doing it, it will make you a leader. And I think that's kind of the way it worked for me. I wanted to work. I wanted a career. I wanted to be known. I wanted to meet other people and be a part of the music community, wherever it was. I just did it. I just stepped up and did it. And I I don't know, it's, it's, it is in my blood, Gabe. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I am a I am a musician through and through. And there are people that certainly play the piano better than I do. But I think what my real gift is, is being able to put a team together and make something work. I'm able to gather a bunch of people around me and delegate and say, okay, you do this, you do that. You over there do the other and make stuff work the other thing that really helped me in learning to lead and and learning to move and get things done quickly was doing summer stock theater because in summer stock you put up a full-scale musical in sometimes nine days and you rehearse anywhere from nine to 11 hours a day and as musical director i get three days to teach the music when you come to rehearsal you bring your score you bring your clipboards you bring a tape recorder and get it down and get it as fast as you can. And I would always say, you know, we're gonna work hard and we're gonna work fast and we're gonna work smart. If you have any questions, see me after rehearsal. That's just how you have to do it. But there are, I mean, there there really, really are other blind pianists out there that certainly play much better than than I do. But it is my ability to manage and my ability to lead and the culmination of all of the skills that I have that make me who I am.
3: For those of you listening out there, don't listen to Duane. He's, he's, he, he, <laughs> he's too modest. He is definitely too modest. He's always been too modest. Oh, my God. You, you are, Duane. Uh, I respect you. You know, I tried to play the piano when I was younger, but my vision not started earlier, and that got it away. Long story short, I do admire you. And, and I have you ranked up there as the best.
2: Gabe, you're, you're really kind, and I appreciate it.
1: Dwayne, you have an emotion that really exudes through you when you play. And that was one of the first things I noticed, because I think in – I didn't hear you play, I don't think, until 2000 in Louisville, but you played um, Through the Fire, an in- instrumental version of Chaka Khan's Through the Fire for the um, art showcase. And that was the first time I really heard you play. I like the song, but your instrumental rendition of it just blew me away. I've Mm -hmm. asked Dwayne to play this song like over and over again through the Mm -hmm. years. And it was exceptional. It wasn't just the playing. It was the feeling that was evident, was brimming, overflowing through that song. But, you know, your, your leadership qualities too, I'm kind of... It seems like from a very young age, you took on a lot of uh, leadership roles and you were adept at responsibility. And I'm kind of curious whether that might have evolved from your parents and the unique setting that you grew up in, because I I know both of your parents were significantly (coughs) cognitively delayed. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, about that and whether that played a role in you becoming who you are today.
2: Absolutely. My father, dad was never diagnosed with Asperger's, but I sort of really believe that's actually what he had. And my dad emotionally really advanced to the age of uh, of, of a, someone possibly about 16 years old. My mother, unfortunately, I, I, I'm not sure what mom suffered from, but her IQ was 60 or less and um, wouldn't have known her name in print. And I tried several times to teach mom to read and she just didn't have the ability to retain information. And so uh, my grandparents, my dad's parents helped manage my mom and dad. And really, and I'm very serious when I say this, by the time I was four years old, I knew something was up. And I decided I had to help grandma and granddad. And so by the time I was eight, ten years old, I was helping manage my folks as well and um it absolutely had a profound, a very profound effect on who I am today and who I am just as a person. If you hear something in the background that's Mr. B, um he's marking <clears throat> something and I'm not sure what it is. But
1: um <laughs> Say it Infamous Mister B guy dog extraordinaire. Yes, yes. At any
2: rate, a story that sort of tells the whole situation. My my parents got married in 1962. My grandmother uh, was able to secure birth control for my parents. Uh, again, my my grandma she was the smartest one I ever knew, and and so she she knew these are two people that don't need to be married, let alone have a child but we know there's going to be sex. So we got to do something about it. So (laughs) grandma got mom birth control and mom discovered that it was interrupting her cycle and she (laughs) wanted a baby. She, rather than rather than doing as she was told uh, and, and uh, take her pill, she just put it in the trash in July of 1962. Mom and dad got pregnant with me and I showed up the next April. I got here with, congenital cataracts, and um, had that to deal with as well. But I think the diversity, uh, adversity, all of all of those things make you persevere, and we have the ability to, to just move on. Children just have the ability of being resilient, and I had no idea that that was going to be so important to me because at the age of 33, I suffered a detached retina in my left eye, which has set me out on this sort of, I, I call it a, an adventure with blindness. I'm not sure I'm having a great time with it, but yet at the same time, I had to, I had to persevere and go on and, and reach out and find some resilience. And I worked, I worked really consistently and, and very much pretty steady until about the year 2011. Yeah. When I became legally blind, I thought, what can I do? What, what can I still do and do well? And I had played in wedding bands and event bands all through college. That's the way I paid my rent, all of that stuff. So I decided to put a band like that together. And I did. Um, the band was called Some Fun. Uh, we played civic events. We played wedding receptions. We, we, we just We were a cover band we played the hits. And again, because I knew lots and lots of really fine musicians in St. Louis, I was, I was able to put those folks together. A guy named Neil E. Boyd who won America has talent. I believe in 2008, Neil sang with my band after he won, he didn't sing with us anymore, but he, he did. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
2: um, I was really, really happy to have gotten the opportunity to work with him and Neil was a great guy and a wonderful singer. Unfortunately, he had a very severe heart attack and died unexpectedly mm. in his in his late 30s. Wow. Um, but yeah, it, it was very unfortunate. But the the housing crisis too of 2007, 2000, 2008, all through there certainly hurt us. We weren't a, a real prevalent band in St. Louis because we'd really just gotten started. Um, But we got to play for uh, Stages St. Louis, which is a a, a big equity summer stock theater company. Every year they do a gala uh, for a fundraiser. And in 2010, 2011, I had the band for their big event. And I wish I could tell you that I know the names of these Broadway performers who came, but I don't. I do know, Leah, that one of the tunes that we had to, to uh we had to get a chart for and play was uh the winner takes it all by Abba. <laughs> Abba. I, I think mm. and i think you like that i love song. that
1: song yes i do
2: and this particular actress she had been in the original broadway cast of Mamma mia that was a lot of fun and by january in january 2011 when when i got to the point where i did i just had light perception it became impossible for me to really play a dance. To do that kind of work, you have to to see the room. You have to know work, yeah. what's going on around you. You have to see what, what people are dancing to, what they're reacting to. We never played from a set list. I just called tunes as we went according to mm. what the people were doing. And so I disbanded that group. And now I will occasionally do a, a jazz trio or jazz quartet job, lots and lots of solo stuff. Um, something that, that I'm really proud of professionally is in 2006, I recorded a CD that I actually nationally released with a big CD party and all that called Blind Ambition. Blind Ambition is an, is an original tune that I wrote and it is out there and it's available. And so go out there and buy it and if you don't have the money to buy it, it's out there. So you can listen to it just for giggles if you want to.
1: How, just so that people that are listening, how can they get a hold of it? Is it on Amazon or how can they get a hold of Blind Ambition now?
2: It's on Amazon. It's on all of those um, Spotify, uh, CD mm. Baby. Uh, my CD was released just at the time that people started downloading music. Mm-hmm. So I have sold lots and lots of downloads but I still have lots of hard copies of the CD and if anyone wants a hard copy just get in touch with me and I can make that happen.
1: I you do know? believe and that I'm, in addition to Blind Ambition there's a there's that rendition of Through the Fire on that CD that I like.
2: I didn't play Through the Fire on 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 Blind Ambition but when I graduated from grad, graduate school in 2000 on, on uh, my graduate recital, I did play through the fire. I'm a big fan of David Foster. Uh, I love that song. I love the lyrics. I love um, syncopated sixteenth note feel. Just um, it, it's it's just it's a great groove tune. I've been through the fire, so I know what I know what that's that's why the emotion about. comes through.
0: A lot of the community is blind or low vision from birth or young age or they lose it much later on in life. And three of us on this call right now lost it midlife. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about when you came into the community, what it felt like to be one of those midlife and, you know, what that journey was like trying to find your new path.
2: Well, I'm still, I'm not sure I've found it, Um, but I I was devastated when I got hurt. uh, I remember telling uh, my retina surgeon, I don't have time for this, I'm in graduate school. And uh, it didn't seem to make any difference. But when I was sighted, being sighted in only one eye really didn't let me fit into the sighted community or the blind community because sighted people would say, well, he's half blind. And the blind community would say, He's not blind. He can see with one eye. He's got twenty twenty five vision. He drives a car. He drives all over the United States. He's not blind. So I didn't fit anywhere, and I, I really was devastated when I, I had a surgery and, and the next and the next morning and I, I woke up and was legally blind. And, and I even think my I think my my doctor was sort of amazed that this had happened. It, it was totally unexpected, but I had excellent care, fine doctors, I believe the very best in the Midwest. There was just simply wasn't anything that could be done. I had an eye that had had glaucoma for, for a long time, and I, I had a very violent sneeze, and that was what caused the retina in my sighted eye to detach. I think it is much harder to lose your sight midlife than it is to be born without sight because you have to learn everything over again. And I find still to this day, now that I'm, I'm over well over 20 years into this, that I have pictures in my mind. And when I do something like, like say if I'm going to iron a shirt, well, I just remember what it looked like mm-hmm. when I did that back in the day. I and know that a lot that too. I yeah, yeah, you know exactly. When I'm when I'm cooking, I I know what it looks like when I'm going to scramble eggs. I, I I really do, and call I use that visual recall a lot. But really, Anthony, it has been very very difficult for me. And uh, Leah talks about my frustration. I really still deal with that frustration, and you learn so much as you go along. And I didn't realize that I wasn't getting the kind of training that I really needed uh-huh. to move forward in my life in the right way. I just didn't know. And I also didn't know that I could do anything about it until just a couple of years ago. At this point, I've gotten enough stuff together that I'm able to maintain and go on and, and, and do. Uh, I would certainly like to be better with technology. Um, and I grow and work and cuss and deal with it every day. But I really believe if I'd had better training that I could have been better um, using technology.
1: Yeah, I think that's unfortunately a common trend when people lose their sight later in life is they do not have any familiarity with the resources that are available. And often a lot of time goes by before they either meet somebody or or are able to tap into those resources. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. it makes it diff- really difficult. I mean, Anthony, I think you were really lucky in that you lived in New York City, which has just, or lived in New York City, which has a wealth of resources available. I mean, there are a lot of parts of the country where it's much more difficult, I think, and challenging to get it's not
0: as glamorous or as accessible as you think it is um See,
1: that's good for me to know because as as we all know i come from uh, a different perspective since i never had usable vision so my path has been different and maybe to someone like me who looks at new york city and sees a oh, lighthouse uh, visions and all the different organizations
0: very briefly i stumbled in the dark for over a year mm-hmm. and it wasn't until i got up to guide dog school that mm-hmm. that the light started to open up for me you know i got mobility through lighthouse but i wasn't in college and i wasn't a student and they weren't mm-hmm. really interested if i didn't know to ask for it which i didn't I didn't had no idea what Voke Rehab was, and suddenly, a year and two months, they're gonna come to my house and bring a little uh, device to hang on my cup that's gonna beep. I'm like, well, I got a finger. Thanks a lot. What else can you know? What else can you show me? <laughs> you know, if I didn't put my finger in there a couple of days into this, I'd have been cleaning up a mess every day. But I, I definitely, I'm so glad that you spoke that truth because I think you know a lot of times. The community doesn't understand that you know, when you lose it in your 30s or 40s, you've had a lifetime of living life a certain way, and it's like you're, you die and, born, and you're born again, and you've got to learn how to do everything that you do in life in a new way, and it's, it's devastating. It is absolutely devastating.
2: I could not agree more. It is absolutely and totally devastating. I mean, I say that the loss of my eyesight was a catastrophic event. Voc rehab, for me, well, it, it, just, wasn't, it just wasn't a good experience. I didn't get real computer training until 2005, and I got it by getting in touch with the St. Louis society for the blind and visually impaired. And they had real uh, technology instructors. And I was very fortunate and, and was able to, to get there and get computer lessons and, and did better. I'm sort of like, like Anthony's doing them, bringing you out the, the little thing that's going to tell you that the coffee's hot. So, so they tell me that I've got to switch from Mac to, pc and that i've got to learn this program called jaws they they send me these cassette tapes this is way back in 97 98 whatever and can you imagine my frustration when i would listen to the cassette and the pleasant voiced man would say now your computer should say this my computer didn't say that (laughs) And it's like, Mm -hmm. now what do I do? And plus just changing platforms because I'd been a a, a Mac user. I, I didn't know anything about PCs. It was just a whole totally different approach. The worst is, is that I wanted to attend Lighthouse School for the Blind in Miami. They have an excellent music program there that I found out about, and it just absolutely made no difference how hard I tried, how many proposals I wrote, how many letters of recommendation, nothing mattered. They were not going to spend the money and send me where I could get the training I
1: needed. I was going to say one of the biggest problems with, I think, the Department of Rehab or Voc Rehab all across the country is that when people lose their sight later and they've already established careers, the Department of Rehab has absolutely no facility or creative streak within them at all to help people who have already established a specific career path. Continue uh-huh. that. And and Dwayne, I mean you already had a career. Anthony, you had a career as an entertainment writer. Those two paths that you were successful at do not fit into the department of rehab mold which is send somebody to IRS training in Arkansas Get someone to go to school for teaching visually impaired people. Or uh, yeah, work in a call center. Work in a call center <laughs> or customer service. Maybe get a grad, uh, some kind of degree in social work. Those paths are what the Department of Rehab is familiar with. And
3: mm-hmm. when
1: someone comes in to those agencies already having a certain set of skills that they've been successful with in the past, they, by and large, and I'd love to have a DOR counselor maybe contact us and tell me otherwise, but by and large, they're unable to deal with people that have differing realities from what they are trying to fit people into. Absolutely.
2: I had that experience. And the other thing, it took me years to figure this part out. Of course, they weren't going to pay any attention to me when I said I'm a professional musician's
0: all blind people play music. Don't you know that?
1: <laughs>
0: oh yeah. We grow up wanting to be Stevie Wonder. We want to, you know, that's the first thing we're gonna be Stevie Wonder or Wait or Ray Charles.
2: Chris Gray, a former president of ACB, who is uh um president of the Missouri Council of the Blind, uh, we had lots of talks about that and Chris said Dwayne, they they just didn't know. They just didn't know. What you had done and what you were capable of doing, and they wouldn't listen to what you were telling them.
1: I'm going to argue, though, that it's even more—it's more of a malignant problem because sometimes they may not know, but sometimes, quite frankly, I don't think they care either. There's a certain philosophy about pushing particular jobs.
0: They take a look at you, they assess, you know, you. They hear you, and then they turn around, basically without saying the words, but it's in everything that they say. Well, you should be grateful that we have A, B, or C opportunities, and if that doesn't fit into the mold of who you are, you need to change and figure out how to fit yourself into that mold rather than think outside the
1: box and figure out how to mold what's out there to help you. Right. Squish yourself into that square, the yeah. box that they want you to fit in.
0: Oh, Dwayne, you play piano. Did you ever think about going to, you know, get a job in a church? As a piano
2: player, if you don't get a church job, you're missing out on a lot of money.
1: Or, um, or I, I could see DOR saying piano tuner as well. That's mm-hmm. still, I think, pushed. The two of you had resumes of work that you'd done. I just find it appalling that departments of rehab across the country can say to people that have had successful careers, whether it's entertainment writing or professional musicianship, anymore. to say, hey, this doesn't matter. You Not only do you need to learn all these new skills, you have to completely rethink yourself and who you are career-wise.
2: Absolutely. And it seems like I know a fella that was an attorney and came to the United States and then, ended up having to get an MBA so that he could find employment, I think.
1: And is still struggling it, with that.
0: <laughs>
1: when I was growing up in my early 20s, I really wanted to work in radio. I really wanted to be a DJ or, or a radio announcer or, or host some kind of talk radio program. And to a T, I was dissuaded from pursuing that career well, you know what, you could go to this program and you could you could be successful and you could work at the IRS. I understand that the IRS does offer a great opportunity. A lot of people have worked for the IRS and they've had promising, yeah. successful careers. However, that is not what I wanted to do. You know, I did performance poetry and, I'm, and I wanted to work in radio. And I often feel that I'm perfectly content where I ended up, which is now working as an adaptive tech quality assurance tester, but I would have liked to been encouraged to really pursue what I wanted. So all across the board, you know, whether you're, whether you're later in life, whether you have never had vision, DOR does a major disservice to, to mm-hmm. blind people across this country, trying to fit us into very tight, constrained molds. That's my soapbox for today's program.
2: I really want everyone who's listening to understand that I am so thankful and realize that I was and am very blessed to have been able to make a living doing what I wanted to do and pursue my passion and become educated doing that. I did it. I made a living as a musician, and I'm not sure you can do that today, but I am so grateful that I got to do that.
0: Where are you with your music now, and where is music with you now?
2: In 2018, I received an artist support grant from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis to edit and rewrite some music that I wrote for my graduate recital, which was way back in the year 2000. So, with a scribe, a man named Steve Malloy, who is a really fine musician. We've gone back and edited those charts and rewritten sections, and we're just about done. And when that process is done, then I'm going to look for a foundation grant and record that music. And I believe that I don't think this is going to be music that is going to sell, but it will be music worth hearing. It's big band music. um, It's jazz. It's going to be quite good. Uh, We just have to find the money to make that happen. After now the the, the pandemic and, and dealing with all of this, I'm not sure what the economy is going to be. And well, it may be a little hard to find the money to do that, but that's the plan. Music is a mean mistress. She will call you in the middle of the night when you don't want to hear from her, and and you either deal with her or she's going to deal with you. I still practice. I still try to learn new tunes. I still try to keep my skills up. I consider myself to be semi-retired. I would really love the opportunity to teach improvisation and different styles to young keyboard players, I think that's an area where I could, I really could be of, of help. But I don't know. I just don't know completely yet what what the future holds. I've been writing music for a lyricist, and we've written some cool things. We'll see. Music is a is a very mean mistress, and so I'm making sure that she stays well fed.
3: Can I have a special request? for a conclusion of this amazing edition of Pride Connection. Leah, you mentioned a moment ago, your dream was to become involved in radio and uh, poetry. We know there <laughs> is a poem by uh, yeah. <laughs> the pen of Ms. Leah Gardner, inspired by Dwayne Estes. Uh, you, can you tell us a little bit about that poem?
1: When I went home, back to Vermont, after I met Dwayne in, in 1999, I had at that time really gotten involved in a poetry slam. And I was doing a lot of performance work and competing in slams, which are poetry contests that involve being on stage and performing in front of an audience. And I kept thinking about Dwayne and really how much talent he exuded as a musician and the fact that his sight loss was something that I felt like he was struggling to contend with. And I thought, you know, this is an individual who has dealt with a lot of battles in his life. The AIDS crisis and seeing people die far too young during the 80s and people that are unable to accept what they fear is some kind of strange sexuality. And and I felt like Dwayne had been really out and proud and in a lot of places in the country where it couldn't have been very easy Mm -hmm. to do so. Tennessee and probably sometimes in St. Louis. And so I kind of thought this sight loss is a war. It's a new war that that he needs to endure and tackle. And if he could see this in the same vein as all the other things that he's fought through in his life. I wonder if, if that might help him address it. Initially, I don't think I wrote it as a performance piece. I wrote it as something, a topic that I was reflecting on after meeting him. And I kind of wrote it in this one burst one afternoon and it gets pretty strident at the mm-hmm. end because I really wanted to convey to him that he could still have a full productive life that was full of vision that had nothing to do with sight. It gets rather strident at the end about that. And I remember thinking, I I don't know what I'm going to do with this piece. And I don't know if (laughs) Dwayne is going to like it or if he's going to be (laughs) angered (laughs) by this. But I sent it to him because I was curious about his reaction.
2: Well, Leah, I really, the first time I heard the poem was when you performed it in Louisville in the year 2000. And I was on stage with the rest of the band at the Friends in Art Showcase. And I was sitting at the piano. And um, I was very touched and very moved. And it did speak to me. And it has been a war. And it continues to be a war. And not for one minute of one day since I started this battle have i ever lost my vision there are many things that i have lost many things there are lots of friends there are lots of opportunities there are any number of things that i have lost but never never have i lost my vision and no matter what happens no matter what happens when i draw my last breath i will still have vision and i will still believe in music
1: well unfortunately music might be a mean mistress but so is time i'm afraid to tell you all that we must conclude this episode of pride connection this show has meant a lot to me on a personal and emotional level i'm very glad to gotten the opportunity to interview my friend Dwayne. and thank you so much anthony and gabe for your exceptional co-hosting abilities. Please, everybody, stay safe, stay well, and try to have fun. We'll see you next week on Pride Connection.
0: Thank you for listening to the show. We'd like to invite you to send any comments, questions, or just join our conversation. Email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at pride.org and join our conversation
1: you have been listening to pride connection sponsored by blind lgbt pride international for more information go to blind lgbt someday
0: we'll find it the rainbow connection the lovers the dreamers